Hey everyone, this is Gans, and welcome to another episode of the Seed Table Podcast, where we try to make sense of what's going on in European technology. My guest today is Daniel Metzler. Daniel is the co-founder and CEO of ESAR Aerospace, a Munich-based company that develops next-generation rockets for sustainable access to space. ESAR Aerospace was founded in 2018 and has been moving extremely fast since then. The debut of Spectrum, their launch vehicle, is scheduled for late 2021. That's a short three years from first design to launch. I think of Daniel as a bridge between space and Earth, both physically, since his company is literally building rockets, and intellectually, because he's able to distill the complex world of space technology in a way that anyone, including me, can understand. I was introduced to Daniel by Paul Clem, principal at Early Bird Ventures, and I'm so happy we made this happen. In this episode, we cover Daniel's mental model for space, ESAR's origin story, the future of satellite connectivity, the underrated possibilities of going to space, why Europe is the perfect place, at least geopolitically speaking, to work on space technology, how the ESAR team is structured to move fast on a yet-to-be-explored field, and much, much more. So without further ado, Daniel Metzler. Hey Daniel, it's a pleasure to have you on the Seed Table podcast. Thank you for coming. How are you doing? Thank you very much for having me. I'm doing absolutely great. I hope you're doing too. I'm doing great as well. So let's let's dive into the first question. What's your first memory of wanting to build rockets and go to space? Actually, the entire aerospace industry fascinated me for quite some time. Although I actually got uh, got intro into the entire industry more on the aeronautics side at first when I was doing design challenges at the joint NASA German Aerospace Center Design Award, which we had, had luckily won within Germany. Uh, so we actually got to present our aircraft designs to NASA. And uh, we actually, at that point, just got to know and got our foot into the entire space industry as well. Uh, got to know how it's actually looking from the inside and also the opportunities that arose from it. How old were you when you presented your designs to, to NASA? That was about two years ago, so I was 26. How, how did it feel? Like, how, how was the experience? At first, you would just think, um, okay, uh, NASA is this, this big corporation kind of style or agency where there's a lot of know-how and definitely is. But at the end of the day, um, it's also at the end just people who are developing technologies, who are pushing for technologies, who are testing technologies. And essentially, there's a big myth kind of around NASA. Well, at the end of the day, it's again just engineers working day and night uh, to actually make cool stuff happen. And this is what I, we wanted to do. So this is also how we got into the entire aerospace industry. So I rarely ask questions for the audience, but today I think it might be valuable to lay the foundation for the rest of the conversation. So... What's your, like your mental model for space and, and space tech? So sort of like the space like one-on-one version we should cover before going deeper into it. Absolutely. So essentially, space is not that far away. So per definition, space actually starts at a hundred kilometer altitude. So if you compare airplanes are flying at a roughly ten kilometers altitude, it's not too far up actually. And when we speak of space, especially commercial space or, or science mission we usually talk about satellites. Satellites are orbiting Earth at roughly 300, 400, 500 kilometer altitude. Orbital mechanics also dictates that they are going around Earth at these altitudes every 90 minutes. So every 90 minutes, the satellite is doing an entire round around the globe, which is also super nice because at the end, uh, when you go into space tech, you will realize that every single business model you do Every single technology you get into is right away on a global scale. So you can always serve the entire globe at the same time because your satellite is just covering the entire Earth. The, the job of the rockets essentially at the end is to really get the satellites to space. And uh, again, uh, the challenge here is not really the altitude, 
but more of the speed. So the satellite has to go as fast, such that it doesn't fall back on Earth, which means for a lower satellite, uh, a lower Earth orbit, uh, let's say 500 kilometers altitude, you would need about 27,000 kilometers per hour, which is in the end the job of the rocket, uh, to just accelerate from the Earth's surface within a short amount of about seven minutes uh, to an orbital velocity of 27,000 kilometers. And are all the satellites roughly the same or like what's the difference between them? There has actually been quite a big of a change in the past few years. So obviously there are different orbits and you might have already thought about, okay, what if uh, a, a satellite is orbiting Earth at 500 kilometers every 90 minutes? Where are, for example, geostationary satellites? So especially TV satellites uh, go around Earth every day. So that essentially they also stay all the way on top of yourself and uh, don't move relatively towards the surface of Earth, which is the case for an orbit at 36,000 kilometers. So quite far away already, about at uh, 10% of the distance towards the moon. So the satellites have changed essentially in that a satellite is nothing less than just electronics. And what we know from mobile phones, from cars, from uh, essentially every consumer tech product is that uh, electronics get better, they get smaller, they get lighter, and so do satellites. So we don't see today these huge satellites anymore weighing five, six, seven, eight tons the size of a school bus, uh, but more having small satellites uh, in the standard best size, uh, even the size of one kilogram, so in, uh, in the volume of one liter, a fully functional satellite orbiting Earth. And then all the way, it's, it's going up to all of the constellation satellites, which are usually about three to 400 kilograms per satellite, where you then actually have enough power for your high bandwidth radio frequency transmitters, where you can actually put nice cameras or sensors on board the satellite. So as of today, all of these satellites, mostly also those which are part of a big constellation, are somewhere in the range of three, four, five hundred kilograms instead of multiple tons, as was a few years always the case. Now, as a society, why should we care about going to space? Space is not just about exploration, as many people also think. It's not just about going to Moon, going to Mars, exploring the universe, although it's definitely an interesting topic. But with space, we always try to make life better on Earth, which means we provide uh, television, phone services, GPS. It's all about satellites. So every time you look on your phone uh, and you check Google Maps, you actually have satellite data from at least four different satellites, which allows your phone to actually determine where it actually is. About weather forecasting, 3D mapping the entire globe. It's about precision farming. How can you reduce uh, the resources on Earth you would need uh, to serve a huge farm, which essentially at the end you have to, to uh, acquire space data to realize when's the best time to harvest. And then obviously there are the extraordinary topics uh, such as catching pirates, for example. So tracking <coughs> ships and maritime logistics, for example, tracking supply chains. One of, one of the nice uh, things I also like, for example, is when you, when you actually take a photo of oil tankers and you can, depending on the, on the position where you take the photo, which you know because you know where your satellite is, and the, the angle of the sun at that specific ending point, uh, you can actually measure how much oil there is on a ship, but just by photographing it, because you can measure the size of the shadow of the ship in the sea, and so you can determine if the size of the shadow is smaller uh, and the ship is deep into the water, which means there's more oil on it. So if you do that automatically with a satellite constellation on a global scale, you can essentially determine the entire flow of oil that is going through ships at near real time, essentially. At the end of the day, space is just an enabling infrastructure and the only limit really is the human imagination with how uh, the technology is adapted and applied uh, to make life better on Earth. So that's why should we care. Now, why should we care now? Like what sort of technical, structural or societal changes are enabling us to, to have this conversation about space right now? 
mostly it's access to technology. So the technology for small satellites, you can literally just go online and procure parts for your satellites online. You can even just book support for building your satellite and essentially build a small CubeSat within a matter of a few weeks for a few tens of thousands of euros and then actually just launch to space. Uh, so the access is part of the globalization uh, we already had in the past few years, which is driving the entire space industry. What's super important also on top is also access to funding. So venture capitalists more and more actually see space technology, not just as a technology which is reserved for NASA and other space agencies, but that is also available uh, to any founder essentially across the globe where then also capital from the private market is flowing into and flourishing the entire industry. But uh, this interest from private institutional capital in space technologies is rather new. Why has historically like venture capital stayed away from this? There actually have been quite some, some projects also going on already 15, 20 years ago, trying to build satellite constellations. At the end of the day, it's also still capital intensive, especially if you want, for example, to build a huge satellite constellation. It might just take billions as well still today, just due to the number and big amount of satellites you would need. On the other hand, really, we are right now also on a technological point in time where you can start thinking about mass production of satellites. Um, it's about including commercial off-the-shelf components. People actually flew Arduinos on satellites. I mean, uh, 25 years, everyone would have thought this is absolutely impossible. It would just have been kind of a, a negative example of a failed project, but essentially it works. So people are starting also to bring the pragmatism into the industry, uh, which is what happened really the past five to seven years, maybe, and not before. So building satellites, that seems to be like the straightforward part of things. And, and what about launching like the actual rockets? Is that the challenging side of things? At the end, it's actual rocket science, yes. Um, although it's rocket science, it's definitely no magic. So people have known how to deal with rockets for quite some time. Sometimes there are definitely topics that are super tricky. May there be liquid oxygen turbo pumps or guidance algorithms or integrating actually the vehicle into a, a complete flight version rocket. But at the end of the day, the technology is known and the challenge here really is to make everything low cost. How can you drive down the cost really for space access such that you can enable all of these applications in space through satellite constellations? And this is the challenge we're exactly trying to, to target with ESAR Aerospace. Um, we're automating a lot of our production processes. We're easing the designs of our products, of our rocket engines, of our turbo pumps, such that we can actually really drive down the costs also for the customer, such that we can loft uh, satellite constellations to space for about a third to a quarter of the price they would actually pay today. That's that's one of the things I, I really love about ESAR. Um, you're lowering the barrier to entry to space, and I think lowering the barrier to entry for a thing is one of the most underrated ways of generating more of that thing. So let's sort of switch gears here and then start start focusing on ESAR. Like what's the non-PR version of, of how ESAR Aerospace started? We were actually building rocket engines already commercially with commercial off-the-shelf products at some point at the university here in Munich. So the Technical University of Munich has quite a big of a history. There's a research group called VAR, which, by the way, also won all of the four Hyperloop competition made by SpaceX in the past five years. And the group actually existed for quite some time now, about 60 years and we've been always building hybrid uh, rocket engines there and sounding rockets. And this is also where our founding team actually found itself. We were building cryogenic rocket engines, also Europe's most powerful cryogenic rocket engines ever built with a 10 kilonewton HTPB and LOX rocket engine until actually the companies who wanted to try to build small launch vehicles came to us and said, hey guys, can we buy the rocket engines you built? And we just asked ourselves, why would you want to buy rocket engines from a bunch of students? And why would you go for hybrid rocket engines for an orbital launch vehicle instead of liquid rocket engines, which are just more high performing? 
So this was our first touch uh, with the industry until we actually got a, a bit of a look into the satellites, the potential customers, uh, also the other launch vehicles, who we had quite an extensive exchange with until we realized, hey, not too many people actually know how to build high-performing rocket engines. Let's just build the entire vehicle ourselves and make sure that we can lower the access to space from European soil. How did that first conversation when you guys said, okay, we're doing this, how did that conversation go? And I say you guys, because you have two co-founders, right? We're three co-founders. Uh, so Joseph and myself, Joseph uh, is uh, doing the, the manufacturing and testing. Myself, I'm doing most of the finance and uh, strategy topics as well as top level GNC things, as well as Marcus, who is leading our combustion team essentially driving the entire rocket engine uh, development forward. So when we sat together, we really took a look at all of the competitors. And at the first time, we just didn't want to be like the 101st launch vehicle to be out there, many of which have already existed on paper. But having already developed multiple sounding rockets as well as rocket engines, we knew where kind of the magic sauce was in, which is the engine, especially for, the, for small launch vehicles. So the entire vehicle stands and falls really with the performance of the rocket engines. And this is where we put our first efforts into. And so we actually asked our potential customers, even if we were to just build and, and sell commercial off-the-shelf rocket engines, what kind of propellants they would use, why they would use them, what kind of their performance they would go for, what's the price point they would go for to actually procure rocket engines off the shelf. And at the end of the day, we realized, based on the, on the answers of, and our discussions we had with potential customers on the launch vehicle side, and not too many were actually in it for developing uh, high-performance rockets and actually serving a customer, but many were just in it for being part of the new space industry, which is definitely good to see. But at the end, it's also rocket science, so you have to know what you're doing. You have to have the hands-on experience. And we just assembled a team of about 10 to 15 people very early on where we covered all of these topics and said, hey, we can actually build the entire vehicle ourselves. We went to investors, pitched it, both the rocket engines as well as the vehicles, and then found ourselves actually talking to SpaceX veterans uh, who said, hey guys, this is actually the best vehicle design I've ever seen since SpaceX. Let's just do this funding round and get you guys started. <laughs> that, that core group of, of people you mentioned, 10, 15, were they all students you knew from, from the university? It was, it was a mix of master's students, of young graduates, uh, so who graduated maybe three, four years before, of PhDs in the fields of uh, rocket technology, rocket propulsion systems. But we were still a fairly young team, although everyone had a lot of hands-on experience because we were designing, manufacturing, actually building and testing rocket engines ourselves for the past five years. So we knew exactly how to build this stuff. Although being quite young in age with the very first uh, bunch of people we had, it was already a very experienced team, which worked super well together. You are based in Munich. And, and here are two things I want to unpack. So the first one is, why do you think Munich is the perfect place to build an uh, aerospace technology company? In Munich, there's already a lot of history, which also means there's a huge uh, supplier industry and in general tech industry around. So maybe from uh, 3D printing machines manufacturers where the global uh, market leader is just located uh, 20 minutes drive from here. There's companies uh, such as Airbus, IABG, there's big companies such as Google and, and kind of also from the, from the entire software industry, Microsoft, IBM. Uh, Munich is actually one of the cities with the most software developers in entire Europe. Uh, so there's a big variety, not just uh, in the tech hub, but essentially the entire city. And this is also what draws many people actually to Munich, the uh, extreme diversity there is within the city. Being a fairly small city, I would say, with about one and a half million uh, inhabitants, 
there's so many different countries represented, bringing in so much different experience from their home countries, uh, which is just, again, uh, a super nice exchange for people here at the company as well. We already resemble more than 25 countries within ESAR, which is super nice because you can actually draw from a wealth of experience from different continents to actually bring ESAR forward. And Munich essentially is also one of the most livable cities. So it's super clean, it's super safe. There's lots of restaurants and bars. So the entire livability of the city is definitely top-notch. I've never been to Munich, but it's it's one of my sort of, uh, it's at the top of my to-do list. I'm thinking about doing a seat table tour before the end of the year, if COVID allows, and, and Munich is, is right there. What attracts me is the sheer density of fantastic technology companies and, and talent and diversity in such a, a, a small city, because you, you said it's one and a half million, right? It's just just insane. Make sure make sure to pack make sure to pack your camera uh, such so you can also do a quick tour through our production facilities when you're actually in Munich to get you an actual feeling of what it's like to experience a rocket production facility as well at some point. I, I'd love to. That's the closest uh, I would be to a, an actual rocket, so <laughs> I can't be in for that one. <laughs> um, Absolutely. Just let me know when you're here. <laughs> the the other part of the question is about location is that Munich this is obvious but it's sort of part of the lead up is Munich is in Europe and I want you to unpack for me the opportunity for Europe in space. So the big diversity is what's also driving different business models. So there are many different companies in Europe along the entire value chain of the space industry. May it be launched such as ESAR, may it be building satellites, may it be actually just running software to analyze all of the data that's aggregated by satellites. May it be connectivity, suppliers uh, to supply technology such as LaserCom to satellites. So there's a big variety of, of companies, not just in Germany, but in entire Europe. And I think what's uh, super nice about Europe is also the geopolitical aspect. But this is uh, super important within the space industry. The space technology per se is also something that's always of political interest to actually have launch capability within the country or within the continent. And uh, this is also what we uh, see as a big advantage of Europe. First of all, that we can even hire people that are non-Europeans. So special talents, we can essentially hire from anywhere in the world, uh, which is really a, a great addition to the European ecosystem. But then again, we can also launch satellites on a global scale. We can launch uh, US satellites, we can launch European satellites, we can launch Asian satellites. So for us, it's essentially on a geopolitical level, one of the, one of the nice advantages which we definitely also see with our customers. Things like import and export are fairly easy within the European Union. So we can actually take, let's say, an Italian or a French satellite to our launch base and launch it within a matter of days uh, compared to just having your satellite being stuck in import-export for three to four months. And that's for the US, if, if a German satellite wants to go to the US, for instance. They'd be stuck exactly, for months. but not just not just not just the US, also India or Russia. It's always involved due to the fact that it's critical technology. It's always involved with a lot of import export, and this is one of the biggest advantages of the European Union that there's a lot of freedom within the European Union to actually ship products, even critical products such as satellites or, or rocket components. What about like US or Russian satellites into Europe? Uh, we could definitely do that. So we can launch U.S. satellites. We can launch uh, Russian satellites. We can as well launch Arabian satellites, Asian satellites, African satellites. So for us, it's actually a sweet spot of being within Europe. We're also right now talking to multiple launch sites actually within Europe, but also on other continents to make sure that we can also serve all of the different customers, uh, both locally as well as to different orbits. Uh, so not just polar or sun-synchronous orbits, but also lower inclination orbits uh, where some of the satellite constellations want to go. So essentially, anyone can get into Europe, but going outside Europe is super impractical, which makes it sort of like a sweet spot for you guys geopolitically. On point, yes. <laughs> Perfect. So 
you, you've been thinking about building rockets for a while and then you actually went ahead and did it. <laughs> what sur surprised you about the process? What's something unexpected? What actually was most unexpected for me was that there's a lot of information available which you can draw from. What's fascinating me every day is the smartness that people here at ESAR approach critical topics, challenging projects or components or test, test campaigns. Um, very, very wide fields uh, that you need to actually incorporate uh, to bring a rocket to actually fly. You need to know the entire combustion topic. You need to know rotating parts. You need to know electronics. You need to know software. You need to know real-time software. Um, you need to know structures, uh, different materials. How do you deal with space radiation? How do you deal with tribal electrification on the launch vehicle? How do you deal with a lightning that might just hit the rocket during its atmospheric ascent? So there are very many different topics that you actually have to take care of to make sure the rocket at the end flies. If you put margins on all of those things, the rocket would not be able to lift off at the end of the day. So you also have to take risks when building rockets. Uh, and then there's the more calculated risks, uh, which we definitely try to go for and essentially use proven technologies while making sure you can optimize such that at the end of the day, you get the best product for the customer to actually bring their satellite. So for me, really, the big variety of topics you deal with, the super smart people you talk to every day, this is what really fascinates me most. This reminds me of something I read in your career page while doing research for this podcast. And it's uh, something like, here, the best idea wins, no matter how unconventional. How do you make sure that marketplace of idea happens uh, within the company? Everyone can essentially contribute as much as they want to. At the end of the day, we are driven by technology and by design parameters and not just by political thinking or by by some uh, magic stuff we, we made up ourselves. So at the end of the day, you, if you have a great idea, you can just work on it and go make it work. So we leave a lot of freedom to our design engineers uh, to actually building the best products they possibly can. We do constant reviews of the systems, also with people from other departments to make sure that there's always a, an angle from a not so familiar technology maybe, to bring up new ideas, to validate new ideas, maybe open up the eyes and say, did you think about this or did you think about that? To actually bring at the end the best ideas to life. And those are usually also the ones that win. You're very deliberate about team building and culture. And you were mentioning hiring from all over the world and the importance of diversity and being able to bring sort of new perspectives. What's your hiring process like? Our hiring process is uh, quite hands-on actually. So we have our job openings on the website. You just apply digitally through the website. Everyone in the company has access uh, to those applicants, especially for the roles which are important to their team respectively. And then it's all about uh, showing what you have. So you fill out assignments, uh, you do assignments. If you achieve that, you actually get towards round two, which is a talk with our talent team to make sure that you're also a cultural fit, um, that you're driven, uh, that you're intrinsically motivated and not just look for another job around the corner. If you pass our talent team, it goes on to a technical interview, which is really just an in-depth interview of your technical skills, where we really feel and see how you perform also under pressure, how your ideas is, what your current experience is. And for us, it's also always important to have a super high motivation rather than a lot of experience, because in our case, also motivation always beats uh, experience, especially when it comes to sometimes even going for unconventional solutions. And then at the end of the day, as a last step, we also always have a talk with one of our managing directors. So either Josef or myself, uh, who then take the final decision on whether we actually take someone into ESAR or not. Uh, so at the end of the day also, we have about uh, one to two percent of all of the applicants um, actually just get a chance to even talk to people here at the company because 
we just get overwhelmed right now also with applications and we just try to source the best talent and most motivated talent out of there that we possibly can. Uh, so instead of only hiring people with deep industry experience, you also take chances on people who know nothing essentially and, and bring a new, maybe naive perspective. And I'm saying that in a completely positive way. Yes, absolutely. So for example, our software engineers, our electronics engineers, they didn't touch, uh, or many of those didn't touch actual rocket electronics before. But then again, a rocket is not more complex on an avionics side than an aircraft or a car. And one of the things that Germany is really profound in is actual automotive engineering, especially thinking of high volume production. How can you drive down the costs in during production as well, which is what we're also always interested in. So you don't necessarily have to have rocket experience. The rocket part, funnily enough, is something that we teach internally as well, where we develop also the know-how base for every new joiner, such that they know the entire system that we're building. We also do trade-offs on a top level as well. So everything, every decision you do on a rocket always affects also other systems. So no system is just going for itself. And for this, it's super important for us that people also understand how the rocket works on a top level, where at the end of the day, you also have to do some horse trading with other departments to make sure that the best product we built is on a rocket level and not just on a subcomponent level. The, the previous experience you need to have to actually join ESAR is not necessarily driven by really having, having had 10 years of experience in the space industry. It's actually just the other way around. We prefer to bring in new and open-minded people from outside industries and teach them the rocket part of it. You mentioned that culture and cultural fit was extremely important. What sort of core traits do you optimize for in your process? Like what's the easier culture? We want to do a very, very strict can-do attitude. There will always be problems that pop up either during manufacturing, during testing. You always have to be hands-on, take a screwdriver into your own hands and just go to the test site and start fixing things. You have to be really hands-on. You have to cooperate a lot with your team. Uh, so team spirit is super important. Um, we actually also just posted our, our values in the internet for our new joiners such that they also see what they will actually experience. For us, ideas matter. So it's always about, as I said already before, making sure the best idea wins on all of the systems we develop. And only this can be achieved by actually having a teamwork that is at the end also a dream work. So where you have every department going hand in hand with the others to make sure the overall rocket system we're building is a complete system and is working as it should work. Very, very cool. So in a previous interview, you mentioned you talked to many, many funds before raising your current CSA from Early Bird and Airbus. So how long did that process take? So the Series A for us was actually quite a tricky one uh, because we were just at the intersect of having an overall design concept and uh, having a technological validation on subcomponent level. But there was still some, some major risk involved overly on, on, the, on the vehicle level, on company level. So before raising the Series A round, we were about 20, 25 people. In the past seven months, we just scaled to quadruple our team to now about 100 employees, which is definitely also a risk, uh, whereas we uh, luckily have, have put together a super well-working-together team. So yeah, the challenge was, was quite big on a Series A level. In the past seven months, there have been so many major milestones that have been achieved, from building flight version rocket engines to building flight version rocket tanks and structures, to setting up our in-house production facilities, getting into very detailed talks with customers who need one and a half billion in the launch needs. So across the entire value chain of tech level, as well as the business level, as well as the team build up, we've just delivered on all of the milestones. So now during Series B fundraising, uh, obviously also there's a lot more that we can actually show, plus also, being all and, and delivering on all of the milestone that we actually promised about seven months ago, which is also always comforting for new investors.
What was the hardest part of the fundraising process during the Series A? The challenge was really that not too many people were familiar with the technology. So while many said, as you would usually hear, the team is great and the product is great, they can't really assess the technology. And unfortunately, also in Europe, there aren't too many experts who you can actually ask uh, to validate any technology. You would just find yourselves on the opposite fence of the competition and just asking the competition on how you would assess the technology, which is, which is always critical. But this is one of, one of the big challenges that we faced. There were a lot of experts definitely in the US as well as kind of from, from building commercial rockets, mostly SpaceX, Blue Origin, Virgin Orbit. But in Europe, this was actually not the case. Uh, so it was quite difficult for investors to get hold of experts who had done the entire rocket development before. So for, for Airbus Ventures, that's uh, very straightforward, right? It's, it's right along their sort of their area of expertise. But early bird, how did you manage to convince those guys? It was a long shot. And funnily enough, our at that time already existing investors tried to intro us many times, whereas early birds say, this is too far away from our core investment strategy. We'll take a pass. Until we actually just got our foot into the door and uh, got the chance to talk to partner Hendrik Brundis as well as his colleague Paul Hlem, where we then at the end just sold him. It's, uh, the space industry right now is just experienced the exact same thing that internet has experienced in the early 90s. So while the technology is definitely more capital intensive, the opportunities are endless. The space industry right now is scheduled uh, to become a trillion dollar industry within the matter of the next 20 years. And the limits are really only set by human minds. What are the applications that you can come up with? Just today, I actually read that a satellite company is doing uh, quantum computing in space. You can do safe cloud computing. You can build radar satellites that guide autonomous vehicles, whether it is night or day or cloudy. Radar satellites can just always serve the purpose. So there's a lot of different uh, technologies available same as, for example, the environmental industry. So if it's all about detecting a leakage or uh, within a production plant, detecting an oil rig that maybe blew up, following the oil that would have uh, gotten into the waters uh, and spreads across the ocean, even measuring the rise of the average ocean level to act, or sea level to actually make sure that we cope correctly with global warming. So these are all topics that are only being made available by satellite technology. And the future of the space industry is super prosperous, essentially just being limited by human imagination. Paul, Paul Glam, he's the one who introduced us and he's so passionate about the space. It's, it's just um, insane, which just shows the, the importance of human relationships, I guess. You started in late 2018, right? That's when ESR was founded. Early 2018, actually, yeah. Oh, early. Cool. But the, the question stands, I think. Um, and your goal is to launch by 2021. Yes. Uh, so we, we follow a super aggressive timeline. It might well be that we'll slip into 2022, but we always try to push as hard as we possibly can to meet our goals, not just on the time side, but also on the financial side, as well as on the actual tech development side. Um, so for us, uh, the Series A was already... A, a, a hooray moment, essentially, uh, which enabled us to grow our team, to follow up on our milestones and our plans, which we all achieved. Um, now, really, the Series B will unfold again and uh, bring us to commercial operations by end of next year, early 2022. And then the first commercial launches we're targeting for about mid-2022. So how on earth did you manage to move this quickly? Because this is sort of like roughly half what building a rocket takes like what sort of organizational process did you put in place to make sure the team moves this fast because i like this reminds me of this facebook mantra of move fast and break things which you can't really do with rockets i guess you can do um it's what we call hardware rich development uh so you just try to design your components in your systems such that you don't get attached to hardware and you don't have any problems just manufacturing a lot of prototypes, 
at actual test data. Don't spend too much time doing uh, computational fluid dynamics, which always help obviously during the design. But at the end of the day, you also need to validate all of the results through actual testing of the components, maybe cold flows, pressurization tests, hot fire tests, um, hardware in the loop tests, or on the software side also software in the loop tests. So we try to run sometimes before we can actually walk to get also familiar with the new technologies that we introduce. May it be additive manufacturing for select components of our rocket engine to high performance lightweight materials on the structural side. So it's always about then again coming back to the hiring philosophy we have here at ESAR. You have to be really, really hands on. You have to just go do stuff instead of uh, trying to just produce paper, uh, in which case you would just be completely misplaced here at the company. So that covers sort of the hard and the, the soft part, but I'm curious if we can go deeper into the actual sort of inner workings on the soft side. Uh, just like the, the hiring, like hiring the right people is the foundation. But what about the day-to-day -day work in between your, so your, your team? So our team is set up in, uh, in different departments based on the technology development. So we have a propulsion team, which again has like the turbo machinery team, a combustion team, an engine integration team. We have an avionics and guidance navigation control team, a structures and fluids team, a manufacturing production team, quality assurance, quite a big spread for all of the different tasks uh, that we have to do to actually get towards first launch and commercial operations. The challenge is to have a very good communication within the company such that you don't do work twice, which really allows you to move fast. A lot of time we actually won by making a lot of right assumptions early on so the first design you do on a rocket, you essentially just have to already do the entire design of the vehicle at the same time. And then you start gaining confidence in the actual parameters that you assumed along the way and try to get more and more elaborate data on all of the subcomponents split down, which is essentially then where the different teams meet, the ones doing the overall designs of the vehicle and trying to make sure we hit all of the requirements. On the other side, the teams were actually developing the hard stuff. And this communication is super important. For us, it was also very critical to have all of the design software we have uh, in the company in-house, which enables many people to take full ownership of their systems, that they not just build their parts with some commercial off-the-shelf software we procure from the outside, but actually empower people. At the end of the day, it's also about making people responsible for all of the systems they develop, which is also driving on, on the quality that they do. So the quality of work is extremely high at ESAR, uh, which we also try to push and give a lot of responsibilities to new joiners who might just never have seen a rocket before. You do everything or almost everything that is integral to your launch vehicle completely in-house, right? When did you guys yes. make that decision? It was very early on? Already before founding the company, actually. So for us, it was critical because you need to do a lot of fast design iterations, then get the actual manufactured parts to the test site, test them, analyze the data, and just the next day go towards the production facilities with a new design, with an improved design, and go to the test stand again a week later. Uh, this is a process you can't really have when you're dependent on external manufacturers. On top of that, as I mentioned before, we're doing a hardware-rich development, which means we just do a lot of prototyping and try to get our hands on actual rocket parts as often as we possibly can, which also means that we save a lot of costs uh, when producing lots of parts. So for us, the decision to go for a vertical value chain integration was a no-brainer. You were able to gather a fantastic set of advisors with very deep industry experience. What would you advise a first-time founder who is looking to build a board or a group of advisors? 
I think you should always keep in mind different topics on where people advise on. Some are better on the tech side, some are better on the actual entrepreneurial side, some are better on a political network side maybe, or in general industry networks. Very few people actually covered the entire breadth, one of which is one of our early investors in SpaceX veteran, Bill and Altan, who has been a good matching partner also to, to our us three founders and challenging us a lot for quite some time, especially early on. And try to get your idea out, especially to customers very early on, to define what's your, going, what's your product going to be like. What are the features you want to have? What are the features you probably think yourself are important, but maybe customers won't actually find that useful. So try to go talk to customers as early as possible while also doing sparing with investors. So especially if you plan on getting into, getting into venture capital or, or in general external funding from the private market, try to get feedback on your products, on your team build up as early as possible. How do you make sure that you extract value? from these advisors and they are not just a photograph when you're about us page. Talk to them a lot. Try to get as comfortable with them as you possibly can. Try to become friends with them such that they also don't hold back information that might be useful to you, but they wouldn't tell you possibly because uh, they want to make you feel bad. So try to really get the most honest feedback from them as you possibly can and just do a lot of iterations with them. Just go bombard them with questions. No question ever is a stupid question when founding a company. So try to soak up as much know-how as you possibly can from the experience of other people. <laughs> no question is a stupid question. It's definitely my, my mantra, <laughs> at least for podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> Let's change lanes a bit. Um, what do you think is your edge uh, as a founder, but most importantly, as, as a human? I think you need to be humble, especially when growing quite a big team. I mean, there are different leadership types who might all have their advantages and disadvantages. We try, and especially myself, I try to let to empower people, let them be very freely in their development in also how they develop personally to give them room to grow if someone after two years says they would like to experience also a different part of the company where they can also contribute a lot based on their learnings, then why would I just say, no, you're not allowed to do this? If it's in the best interest of the company as well as the human individual, then I would always go for enabling people to actually reach a point uh, where they can grow themselves. And at the end, also, it's about technology development always. So in the deep tech, I think you need to have a very good understanding of the actual basic technology that underlies it, the basic physics that underlie, such that you can also evaluate and not just base your experience or base your decision making on purely external factors, which you can't really assess yourself. So you have to be technologically experienced but on the other side, also leave room for innovation and be open to new approaches, new solutions, new technologies that the team introduces. You've described rockets as a, set, a system with subsystems or a set of systems. And, and you were mentioning about uh, just being technologically proficient. Like, how do you absorb and consume information and, and build this mental model or mental castle of, of this, like all these systems? You have to put in a lot of time to actually get proficient in all of the different topics. Uh, but again, there the, the top advice would really be ask people questions. Talk to the best and smartest people there are in propulsion. Talk to the smartest people in guidance and control. Talk to the smartest people in avionics or structures design. So you actually build up and can cover the overall system overview of the entire launch system, such that also there are people who can make matchings between and, and see synergies between different departments or maybe to a potential strategic partnerships with an external agency or a company 
um, or uh, any advisor, maybe there is from, from externally to actually make sure that you don't overlook anything during the entire design. At the end also, it's about trying to, and actually wanting to understand all of it. So you won't understand it if you don't want to know it. So you actually just have to talk a lot to the people to get your own hands on the technology um, to design software packages yourself, to actually design components yourself such that you can get your head into and around all of the, the systems you design at the company. At the end, you also can't really design all of the systems, but you can possibly try to at least get a hold of all of the different features as well as the approaches on an engineering side on how to solve these problems. So do you consider yourself a generalist or a specialist? I actually started with, uh, with a very specific set of know-how. Um, so what I developed was a six degree of freedom ascent simulation, which allowed us to just simulate the entire vehicle ascent uh, through atmosphere from the launch pad directly to orbit and orbit insertion, which also has a nice advantage as is with almost everything within the avionics and guidance navigation control department. It's kind of a backdoor to the entire launch system. You need to know the performance of every system. You need to know the masses of every system. Uh, you need to know the, the mass distribution even. What are the mass flows? What are aerodynamics? Uh, you need to incorporate all of the different topics and actually simulating an entire rocket launch. So this is where I started, which also taught me a lot about how all of the different systems work, how sensitive some components are, how insensitive some other components may be. And from that on, we now also put a lot of effort, especially the, the management and our first leadership level, into making sure that we don't do work twice, that we see synergies between different uh, components, that we actually can drive our development on our super aggressive timeline forward as we plan. Systems thinking seems to be a big part of how you operate. Do you have any books you recommend on the topic? There's a, a kind of technological field which is called systems engineering, which is essentially something where you try to get uh, matrices, where you try to see the influences of one system on the other. I, in general, don't like systems engineering because you essentially only need it if communication within the company is not working properly. So as long as people are communicating well, as people are aware of what's going on in all of the different things that actually go onto the rocket, then there's no official need for a systems engineering department, uh, which is at the end also something to just kind of blow up the, the entire team trying to produce paper, which we don't really like. We like to do hardware, we like to get to the test tube, we like to get to the launch pad and not producing paper. Part of growing and learning is changing your mind, uh, sort of updating the, the operating system. What, what have you changed your mind about recently? Driven by the big team growth we had, very early on, everyone has to do everything. Uh, from fixing their own IT problems to helping out other teams. Uh, we had avionics team members who actually built up our propulsion test tricks, which was none of their business, but put in the effort and saw the goal towards uh, the bigger picture. And this is super important. The bigger the company grows, the harder it is to maintain this uh, because uh, you're just working in very detail on specific components on a specific line of code where you have to make sure you actually get it right in the very detail. And it's always then tempting to lose sight of the big picture. It's a challenge, although we try to also keep this in mind with every new joiner that we have at ESAR to give them an overview of that it takes an entire team and uh, the entire chain is only as strong as its weakest link. And if you break there, the entire change breaks. I want to try something new and something I've never asked, but let's let's see how it goes. Um, what should I ask you that I didn't know enough to ask? Essentially, if you could step into my shoes, what would you have asked yourself that I didn't? That's actually a good question. Let me think. 
<laughs> so there's one or two things. Um, maybe what you could ask is, um, what did you change along the way, for example, when presenting ESAR from a very, very early idea on, so before our seed round actually, to now pitching ESAR towards Series B investors? Like, how did our pitch change across the time? Okay, so th then how did your pitch change across uh, time? And this is a perfect setup for my last question, so. So early on, we were very much focused on the technology, on trying to get every number right, until we actually realized that a company is much more than just technology. It's about the team, it's about the culture, which we also discussed. So making sure that you select the right team as an investor is super critical, which was also made aware to us over time um, until we realized most of investors also don't understand the technology uh, in detail. So also our pitch changed along the way from what's the technology we build and why is it better than our competition's technology or what has been done previously in the industry to how can we sustain big growth? Where's the big vision that we want to go towards? How can we make it happen? How much risk is still involved? And how can we actually build the next space champ on a global scale? And the storyline is fairly different coming from a very engineering driven pitch to a very story driven pitch, uh, which was one of the big learnings we had at ESER. I think venture capitalists say this as an, an unknown space with a lot of risk. Have you thought about de-risking the story as you went and how you did that? I think we maximally de-risked everything so far that we possibly can, both on the technological side, as well as on the team side, as well as on the, on the business case and financial side. So far, especially our current shareholders have gained a lot of confidence in our financial planning as we have been hitting on our financial plans uh, on point over the past two and a half years. Although being first time founders, and actually scaling also with our Series A, our burn rate by tenfold. But we actually delivered on all of our milestones. So yeah, it's uh, definitely a super exciting time to, to build rockets in also an ever-growing industry. And you constantly get motivated by, by new people, by curious people, by applicants that we have at the company, as well as by also changes within the established industry that you somehow just have to drive yourself. So we cover the story from the early beginnings to now. So let's let's talk about the future. Like, what's the most ambitious version of ESR? Definitely enabling an interplanetary exchange and transport and logistics and mobility. So the most crucial thing you need to enable space is the access and in-space transportation topic, which is what we're solving with the current rocket that we're building. But once you figure out the transportation, you can do anything. You can build satellite constellations, which we'll leave to our customers, but you can actually go towards the moon, you fly more towards Mars, you build a constant uh, economy, economical exchange between Earth and Mars or moon, and actually really uh, making science fiction, not so science fiction anymore. So the limitation, as I said, is only the one that is in our own minds and technology is definitely able to do it. So we would like to build a moon base. We would like to support with constant flights we do from Earth to the moon, enable a flourishing space industry with satellite constellation that we can actually uh, get also a big advantage on Earth from the entire space how far away are we from this? How far away are we are we from just having like Twitter battles about governance in the moon or Mars? Not too far away. There there are right now quite a quite some um, private initiatives ongoing to talk about things like can you own a house on the moon? How would you figure out kind of the policies and rules about settling on the moon, settling on Mars? 
the technology is not really the bottleneck and it's definitely something that people already done 60 years ago. So it's always about the human mind and making sure just pushing for it uh, and making the stuff happen. So I would say within the next five to 10 years, maybe we'll see a big, big increase in space transportation activities driven by the curiosity of humanity. I think that's a perfect place to end on. Thank you so much, Daniel, for your time. It's, it's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you very much and uh, great for you having me. Uh, it was super exciting to talk to you and also bring space tech uh, a little bit closer to people on Earth. Hey, this is Gonzaga. If you enjoyed this episode of the CTL podcast, please let me know by leaving an honest review. If you want to get more good stuff from me, subscribe to SeedTable.com. SeedTable is a weekly newsletter on European technology. It goes out every Friday morning and it's read by thousands of founders, investors, and operators. That's all for today. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time. Ciao.